So there's always tweaks after a presentation because we have all these options and now it's time to kind of put all our might behind that one option and we figure out, you know, perfect execution of the symbol, a perfect, uh, you know, tweaking of the typography, the letter spacing, the proportion of the symbol to the lettering, different configurations, horizontal, vertical, uh, all of that. And then, you know, we, in this case, we developed a very extensive set of guidelines. And this logo is used in every way possible, from food and beverage to you know, on screen, to animation, to advertising, to signage. Hey everyone, welcome to A Change of Brand, a show featuring behind the scenes stories of rebrand, glory, drama, or disaster. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Today we have an ace of a show, a big hitter, if you will. We're talking about the U.S. Open. It's the closing of the Grand Slam season in the city that never sleeps. Here, any player will be galvanized by the clamor of the arena. It urges them to tap into unexpected resources, keeping the crowd on edge and the lights ablaze season after season. Welcome to the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is one of tennis's most prestigious tournaments and a big brand in the sports and entertainment field. While I love all sports, I will admit I'm not a huge tennis fan. My only real connection to the sport is from my childhood. Growing up, people said I looked a lot like Boris Becker, a famous tennis player in the 80s who happened to win the men's singles U.S. Open tournament in 1989. And yes, he does have red hair. I want to set the stage a little bit for just how big the U.S. Open is. In 2021, the total prize money for the U.S. Open tournament was $57.5 million. With close to a million viewers watching the tournament in the United States alone. Around 2017, however, the brand was starting to feel a bit dated. And I want you to know this rebrand story will not disappoint. You're going to get a comeback tale that even Roger Federer or Steffi Graf would be proud of. This is also a great story of remaining poised and calm under pressure while fielding ridiculous feedback navigating tight timelines, and trying to advance through a gauntlet of approvals. You're also going to find out how the U.S. Open served up a new look that sports fans would come to love. For more backstory on the U.S. Open and what led up to their 2018 change of brand, let's go to brand strategist Tracy Clark for our briefing. After competing in the Australian Open, French Open, and Wimbledon Championships, the world's most elite tennis players bring their A-game to the U.S. Open, the fourth and final tournament in the annual Grand Slam of Tennis. The tennis tourney that would come to be known as the U.S. Open began in August 1881 as the U.S. National Championships for Men. In those early days, as the name implies, men were the only ones allowed to compete in singles and doubles tournaments and they had to be members of the United States National Lawn Tennis Association. 
The first tournament was held on the grass tennis courts of Rhode Island's Newport Casino, located, of course, in Newport. Player Richard Sears held court for seven years, winning the National Championship Singles Tournament year after year from 1881 to 1887, and same for the doubles from 1882 to 1887. By 1887, women were allowed to compete, first in singles tournaments, then doubles in 1889, and finally mixed doubles competitions in 1892, bringing a total of five competitions into the fold. However, it wasn't until 1950 that the stubbornly white tournament finally broke the color barrier. Althea Gibson became the first black player, male or female, to compete in a national U.S. tennis competition. She would go on to win 11 Grand Slam titles over the course of her career and open doors for countless players in decades to come. Gender equality at the U.S. Open had to wait a bit longer. After Billie Jean King threatened to boycott the event in 1973, the U.S. Open became the first Grand Slam tournament to offer men and women equal prize money. Back then, singles winners each took home $25,000. Today, the jackpot has ballooned to $2.5 million each. Until 1968, all of the championship contests were held at different locales across the country, with players competing on different surfaces. That year, all of the competitions were brought under one roof, or on one court, so to speak, at the Westside Tennis Club in Forest Hills, a mostly residential neighborhood in Queens, New York, for those not familiar. The year marked a turning point for the championships, which were previously limited to amateurs. The 1968 tournament was open to professionals, and it would henceforth be known as the U.S. Open and the Open Era. A decade later, the U.S. Open moved three miles north from Forest Hills to Flushing Meadows, also in Queens. The newly constructed USTA National Tennis Center, today known as the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, was quite the upgrade for the tournament. Today, the largest tennis facility in the world is home to 34 courts and three stadiums, including the Arthur Ashe Stadium, also the world's largest, Louis Armstrong Stadium, and the Grandstand. The facility is open to the public to play year-round and also hosts events like college commencements, weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs, concerts, and much more. On the 50th anniversary of the Open Era, the 137-year-old competition felt decidedly dated. Having used the same brand mark for 20 years, Marketing leaders for the U.S. Open decided it was time for a change of brand. The previous U.S. Open logo, which debuted in 1997, depicted a gold flaming tennis ball overlapping a red swoosh, very ESPN-like. The 2018 redesign simplifies the ball with three yellow pointed marks trailing behind it, resembling the shape of a tennis ball in flight. The red ESPN swoosh was removed and the mark is often seen on a bright blue backdrop. The previous logo had thin capital sans serif type spelling US Open, but that was replaced with an italic sans serif wordmark all in lowercase, which raised some eyebrows. Be sure to see the change of brand for yourself at achangeofbrand.com. Just click on this episode and scroll down to see the breakdown. The new logo was designed by one of the most prestigious identity design firms in the world, Shermayev, Geismar, and Haviv, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I will refer to them often as CGH. The group was founded in 1957 by the two Yale graduates, Ivan Shermayev and Tom Geismar, 
legends in the field of graphic design and especially identity design. The studio has authored some of the most notable logos ever created. Mobile, National Geographic, the EPA, Xerox, the Smithsonian, MoMA, PBS, Showtime, State Farm, and even the NBC Peacock. In 2006, Sagi Haviv became the third partner in the firm, eventually adding his name to the masthead in 2013. Well, the first time I heard about this unpronounceable name and these two <laughs> gentlemen was in uh, Cooper Union, where I came across the book TM. It's just like a square book that has all these kind of logos, each one on its own page. And it suddenly kind of struck me that like I'm really drawn to this simplicity and they're like presented as kind of pieces of modern art on each page. And, and that simplicity is, is really intoxicating for me. So I, I was really drawn to that. And the more I kind of learned about them and the history, it kind of became my dream to work there. So when I finished school, I went and I knocked on the door and got an interview and, but they immediately told me like, Hey, we like your work, but we're not really hiring right now. And I begged and I, and I kept sending emails and eventually they said, okay, you can come in for three days a week, but we can't pay you. And I said, fine. And that was my first, <laughs> my first gig there. Opportunities sometimes present themselves unexpectedly. And the company split into two in 2005. And I was actually... Uh, compelled to go with the other team and because they were younger partners that uh, one of them brought me on, uh, Steph Geisbuehler. And so I, I was trying to figure out a way to say no to Ivan and Tom and a friend of mine said, it just has to be a partner and they'll say no and you can, you can go with the other ones. And so I walked into Tom's office and I said, I want to be a partner. And he said, Okay. And that was it. Over the years, Sagi earned his reputation as a logo prodigy. As the New Yorker named him in 2011, he's co-authored two books on identity design and he teaches corporate ID at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Needless to say, the New Yorker was right. He's kind of a big deal. But he's also a delight to talk to and was willing to give us the inside scoop on the U.S. Open project. There is one thing you should know about Sagi, however. He loves tennis. Yeah, I mean, we, a few years before, we had done the identity for the Women's Tennis Association. And subsequent to that, we were, we got an email every, every year in July asking us if we want to go to the US Open and uh, sit in the, in the box of the Women's Tennis Association, which is literally the best seats. So, of course, we said yes. And for, so for a few years, we were going to the U.S. Open. And I always looked at that mark and I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of great, but at the same time, it looks kind of dated. And then, so when we got the email from them, it, we weren't surprised, but there was some discussion. Internally, they discussed the opportunity and the overall need. Does the U.S. Open really need a new logo? 
Some on the team felt like it was classic and iconic, whereas Sagi disagreed and he felt like it could use an upgrade. And they decided to put in a proposal to compete for the project. They made the short list and were asked to come to White Plains, New York to pitch to the United States Tennis Association Executive Committee, the USTA, not the USDA, the USTA. The, the United States Tennis Association is a highly matrixed organization and it's highly democratic and everybody's opinion weighs the same, which is very difficult. I mean, oftentimes I say for identity design process, democracy is not helpful at all. And because everybody has opinions and everybody has feelings about logos, about colors, about typography, about shapes. And so we... Went up there and there were maybe 12 people in the room. And what we do is we pick, you know, there's a very big portfolio. So we always try to pick the most relevant projects to show. And projects can be relevant in different ways, different facets of the project. Could be in the same industry, maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's uh, sports. So, you know, we showed NBC and the revised Peacock that the company did in the 80s. It could be in sports, so we showed the Women's Tennis Association project that we had done. But then there are other facets, like the type of change that is required. And maybe we wanted to show something that was kind of an evolutional uh, transformation. So we showed what we had done for State Farm Insurance. Um, so different stories that relate and resonate with the, the task at hand. And then at the end of this presentation, we felt really good. And actually, people came up to us and talked to us and kind of kept us a little longer. And we really thought, hey, we, we got this. You know, this is, we, I know that we came across as really passionate because we care about tennis a lot. So we were back in the office. Two weeks later, we get a call. Uh, and they called CanCam, who's running the, the RFP process. A very nice lady. She's now a friend. Uh, she said, guys, I wish I had better news. And we were all kind of... Uh, standing in Tom's office on a speakerphone. And we were shocked. We looked at each other and I said, are you serious? And she goes, yeah, we decided to go with another agency. And, you know, we were very, very disappointed. I think, you know, we always win some, lose some, but in this case, it was really close to, to our heart. And, and I said that to her. I said, look, Nicole, please, Make sure you get a good logo because we care about the U.S. Open. We live in New York. We see your advertising every year in the summer all around in taxis and buses. And, um, and I said, you know, good luck and, and please call us anytime. I don't know why I said that, but I said that. And we hung up the phone and uh, that was a tough night. So despite their passion and impressive portfolio of work, they did not get the project, which I will admit is quite a shocker and not how I expected the story to go. 
Sagi and his team moved on like you do when you lose something like this. They are professionals after all. And then two and a half months later, he got a phone call. The secretary said that Nicole is on the phone. And I was, I was so surprised. I said, I picked up the phone. I said, hi, Nicole. And she said, hi. And I said, um, what's up? And she said, well, you said we can call anytime. And I said, yes. Uh, what's going on? And she said, well, I have to tell you that, you know, we got a recommendation from the agency that we selected that our logo should not be about tennis, that our logo should be abstract, and that that's the way to kind of uh, widen the appeal. And I thought about it and I said, wait a minute, but what about US, what about US Open Golf, uh, which is a very famous tournament? Um, I'm not uh, a golf fan, but I know about it. And she said, yes, you know, we, we are struggling with that as well. And we, we talked about it a little, a little more and she said, well, now we're behind <laughs> because the lead time for merchandise and all of that is, is very, very long. And she said, how soon can you come up to White Plains? And, and all that was left was to negotiate how long she would give us. And this is something that we really insist on, that if we're going to take a project, we have to be able to do it properly. And properly means that we have to allow enough time for the best ideas to come to the surface for us to, to truly, because some things come up like the first day and some things come up later. And we like to, even if we think the idea is amazing the first time we come up with it, we like to you know, hang it on the wall, come in in the morning, see, did it get better overnight? Did it get older overnight? You know, a logo really has to endure. And it can't be something that you get excited about in the beginning and then you get over it after a month or two. And that's why it's important to allow enough time. So we got the call late May, I think, and we I negotiated with her July 29th. That was the agreement. And that was absolutely the last day that she could even imagine they could see it. In a wild turn of events, the CGH team made an epic comeback and won the project. But now the clock is ticking. And I'd like to camp out here for just a moment. This is an unusual story. In my 20-year career and in three seasons of this show, I have never heard of a group losing the pitch only to be awarded the same project a few months later. So I wanted to press in a bit more to understand if Saggy knew why they lost in the first place. Our approach to identity design is extremely practical. It's disciplined. It's, I wouldn't say it's dry, but it's very, very, you know, a logo must be utilitarian. It must be functional. And we are mesmerized by functionality of these things. You know, a logo cannot say very much. It's not going to be, not going to tell people who you are, what you do, what your offering is. It really is, identification is not communication. It's 
they are quite different, uh, you know, animals. And so our presentation revolves around our entire approach of problem solving and everything. And I think that sometimes it's easy to get mesmerized by a sexy vision or a sexy, you know, promise that sometimes is very hard to deliver ultimately in a simple logo. Essentially, Sagi felt they were too honest and practical in thinking about the potential of the U.S. Open logo, choosing to be unashamed in their commitment to functionality. The original executive committee making the decision must have been swept up in the hype of the other agency. And like the prodigal son returning to his father, Nicole came looking back for help, not once, but twice. I got another call from Nicole a couple of weeks later, and she said, Oh, Sagi, can we uh, accelerate the, pro- the, the, the timeline? And as I said, you know, we, we don't. We don't really compromise on that. And I said, well, why, Nicole? We agreed on July 29th. And she said, well, we went back to the other agency and they wanted to do uh, another creative round. And I said, oh, um, and you agreed to that? And she said, sure, we want to see as much as possible. And we didn't have a problem with it on in principle, but... You know, there is a thing that, you know, the trust that they have to develop in us so that we can guide them through the process and then sometimes push on them a little bit to go maybe with a concept that maybe is difficult at that moment and might be easier over time. You know, if you always have other options and other maybe easier options that may not prove themselves in the long term, that compromises our, you know, ability to successfully get them, uh, you know, over the finish line. And that's where we were not happy about that little wrinkle. And so she said, well, and they promised to come back July 13th. So could you come back July 13th? And I said, no, Nicole. We are not going to do that. And she said, okay, Sagi, but they will present to us July 13th. So if you, if we like something they've done, then I, I, I don't know. And it was literally like a moment when I was like, am I going to stick to my guns and really insist to have enough time? And I said, okay, uh, go ahead and see what they have July 13th and we'll present to you July 29th. And which, you know, the, the final logo that they picked was born July 22nd. So if we had agreed to present July 13th, they would never have gotten to see that logo that they picked. Every designer or CD out there getting time pressure from your client, which is many of you, if not all of you, just rewind 30 seconds and send your client that clip. What Sagi just walked us through is not easy and takes a lot of courage and conviction to navigate. It's important to ask clarifying questions when we get challenging timeline requests. Poking and prodding can sometimes present opportunities to solve the problem in a different way instead of sacrificing the quality of the work. We all know that one week can make a big 
difference in the creative process. And in this case, it literally did. The clock is now ticking as Sagi and the CGH team work towards the round one presentation. The RFP had originally said the flaming tennis ball was important and a bit of a sacred cow. And apparently they meant it because the other agency pushed to remove it and to introduce a non-tennis ball symbol, which was probably a forced error on their part and led to Nicole to call and ask CGH to come back in. First, they started with research to put some of their hunches and notions to the test. We, we just look for points of input, right? And the points of input we get are, you know, in different ways. So, of course, we review materials. We went to visit the grounds there at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center in Queens. And we visited Arthur Ashe Stadium. Oh, it's like a great field trip. And this was during the summer when they were preparing for the Open. So they're painting the court and they're, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting. It's like a big show that they prepare for for months. Then we conduct interviews. And then sometimes we do research. In this case, we did. I'll start with the research. There was the notion that they could do something abstract for the U.S. Open tennis. And... We wanted to know if that's even an option and what does the words U.S. Open mean to people? So we asked a thousand people in four different markets around the U.S. When you hear the words U.S. Open, what sport do you think about? 42% of people said they think about tennis first. But the same exact number, 42% of people said they think about golf first. So that was a total validation of our initial instinct that there must be a nod to the sport in the logo. Because if you don't, and if somebody comes to the US Open Tennis and they buy a t-shirt with a logo and then they go out into the world and there is no reference to tennis, what did you do for the sport? What did you do for the event? This is what I, I mean by I say, you have to have a practical approach. You can have all kinds of lofty ideas but it has to serve the business. And your ideas have to be based in that mission. So that kind of answered that question. And every option that we created for them had a nod to the sport in it. The second question we had was, is there equity in the, in the silhouette that they had, in the flaming tennis ball that they had? They called it the sacred cow. Well, is there a reason to really stick to it? So we did a recognition survey. We picked uh, 18 different logos from uh, sports and entertainment that are very famous, from NBC, National Geographic, the Miami Heat, the NBA, the Olympic rings. And we put in front of a different thousand people and we asked them to name what the organization that it represents. And when the results came in, they were interesting. Actually, the highest score got the Olympic rings. They got 98% recognition. And I was always wondering who is the 2% that didn't <laughs> yeah. recognize them. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I don't know any of those people. Um, and, you know, other surprises, the Miami Heat scored 60%, which is really amazing. And the US Open... Um, scored really low, just 
9%. Uh, 9% of people recognize the US Open without the name. And even among tennis diehard fans, only 13% recognize it. So with that, we felt, you know, there is no much equity in their logo and we can depart from it and go a different direction. So how do you get started? How do you, you know, wh where do you draw inspiration for a symbol, for an original symbol? So that's where the interviews come in. And in the interviews, and, and those interviews, we often, you know, coordinate with Nicole and Amy to make sure that, you know, we hit on all the most important personas and personalities within the organization and sometimes outside of the organization to give us a real picture about not just about the nature of the event. You know, there's a question that we always ask. This question is meant to manage expectations and obviously uh, elicit input on the conceptual starting point for the logo. We say a logo has to be very simple, so it cannot say very much. So there immediately we laid the foundation for them to understand what to expect, because obviously people expect the world from the logo. Cannot say very much, but if there was one thing, one idea that we could distill into that simple mark, what should it be for the US Open? One idea, one personality trait, one characteristic, one feeling even. And we're looking for a single word. And at this point, it becomes very difficult for the interviewee because they had all these ideas that they were ready to tell us about what the logo should say and communicate. And we just laid, you know, some barrier to that and said, give us one word. The words that we received from the U.S. Open team the, at the USTA, everybody gave a different word, but they were amazingly consistent. We heard excitement. We heard energy. We heard movement. We heard even explosion. We heard all kinds of words that captured the energy of the event. And frankly, pointed us right back in the direction of a flaming tennis ball when you add in the requirement that it would have a nod for the sport. So we kind of departed from it based on the research and came right back around when we heard what the logo should be about. And that threw us into kind of a, a period of exploration, creative exploration, that tried to bring those two things together, this idea of energy and heat and and, and excitement with this idea of tennis. After this initial research and honing in on the right design criteria, they got to work sketching. In fact, Sigi told me they had over 6,000 sketches, which is hard to fathom. His team would review them laid out on huge boards and use stickies to narrow down to the top choices. Those discussions is kind of the, the heart of of this process that we do internally before we show anything to a client. We will never show a sketch. We will never show an unfinished, untested, uh, you know, piece of graphic. And when I mean, when I say tested, I mean in applications and also in trademark search. So what happens is we would identify the most promising directions and those we will send to an attorney that then conducts 
what we call a preliminary knockout search. We discuss with the client what are the parameters of the search. And once we kind of narrow it down to those most promising and the ones that clear trademark, we will then apply them to a cross-section of communications that are the most relevant for the client. As Sagi and team dotted their I's and crossed their T's, Nicole, their client, was getting a little eager. Eager and ready and nervous because what happened was the July 13th presentation did not go very well. And now she was so nervous that if she doesn't see something she likes, you know, on the 29th, then where, where is she? She's, she, she, she's, that, that's, that, that would be a disaster. So she kept calling and asking, how many will you show, show us? And, you know, it's so funny because people are oftentimes thinking about numbers, but our approach is to never show anything that we don't truly believe in. So it's never showing options for the sake of options. It's never throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping that something will stick. It's really showing great options. And we actually showed them eight things, which is more than we ever show anybody because she was so nervous and because we knew that the stakes were so high and that there was no, there was no time to turn back. Um, and the way we do it is we do a preliminary presentation first. Uh, so we did it with Nicole and with Amy and they came to our office. We like to have kind of a home court advantage when we do the preliminary presentation. Oftentimes it's different with every client, but you know, they came here, uh, <clears throat> it was a, it was a Friday and, uh, you know, you can see how nervous they are when they walk through the door. And that's not unusual. You know, it's almost like, you know, after plastic surgery, removing the, the bandages and seeing your face for the first time, it's, it's a little bit of that, um, kind of trepidation. And <clears throat> they were sitting there and we always have them sit at the head of the table across from our big flat screen. And before the presentation, before that you see graphics, there's always a lot of front matter because we really try to explain why we did what we did, why we made the choices that we made. And in this case, the presentation was arranged, the options were arranged from the closest to what they had to the most revolutionary. So there were steps from a refinement to the flaming ball that they had and things that kind of grew out of it and slowly departing from it and becoming more kind of what we wanted. And the thing is, we had an idea and we always have an idea walking in where we want to end up. But you have to let the client get there on their own. And we always present the, the logos on an even playing field. Every option is, is, is applied to exactly the same executions and the same applications. We don't favor uh, any one of them in the applications. Then if they were asked at the end, we would, uh, we would be very happy to make a case for what, where we think they should go. And we did, we were asked and we did uh, tell them. And, <clears throat> but you have to let them see it for themselves. You know, it's, it's a little bit, it's like a visual case, you know, where you see that 
this one reduces better than that one. So, oh, maybe I like the fact that this logo maybe has a little bit more of an expression, but look how well that other one functions. And so at the end, after, you know, I think there was like 650 slides in that presentation, we get to a series of comparisons. And the comparisons show all eight in different applications. So you will see a series of, you know, um, screens with a logo on them, a series of app icons with the different options and so on. So that you see, you can compare the functionality of each design. Okay, when we come back from the break, we learn about the gauntlet of approvals and how Sagi is the true champion of staying calm under pressure. All that and more after the break. Hey, everyone. Guess what? Blake, our fearless podcast host, wrote a book. And if you are a CMO or brand leader of any kind, this book is for you. It's called Radically Relevant, and it's all about how growing brands can get unstuck and move forward with confidence. It's filled with examples, anecdotes, and even a few classic dad jokes. The best part is it comes with this radically relevant assessment so you can see how your brand is performing and stacks up against others in your space. The book officially launches this fall, but you can take the radically relevant assessment today for free and buy the book on presale. Just go to radicallyrelevantbrand.com. We'll also link it in today's show notes for you. Last but not least, don't forget to join along in more of the conversation on Instagram. See more about today's episode, share with a friend, or send us an idea you might have for a future episode at A Change of Brand. All right, let's get back to the show. We've been following along the comeback story of Sagi and the CGH team, missing out on the original pitch, only to be brought back in to save the day. Now, after 6,000 sketches and a really tight timeline, he has walked Nicole and Amy from the USTA through their preliminary presentation. After leaving the screen on a summary slide, Sagi paused and waited for their reaction. They were thrilled and we were relieved. I would say that. I mean, and I think they were relieved too, but this whole thing, I mean, you remarked on the fact that this project kind of made its way to us in a very unusual dynamic. And so we didn't want a letdown after all that. We wanted to have a great story at the end. And more than anything, we did not want to disappoint Nicole. Specifically, Nicole had so much on the line for her career internally with the dynamics within the organization that we wanted to make sure that she was kind of confident about the work. And she was, and so was Amy. And then we narrowed down the options together uh, in advance of a meeting with the executive uh, committee up in White Plains. It wasn't difficult to narrow them down. Essentially, the options that were the most evolutionary fell by the wayside because they immediately saw that what they had looked old, even if we fixed it, even if we kind of made it perfect, uh, which we did, we improved on it. But there was so much more opportunity in the ones that were a little bit further down that continuum between evolution and revolution. So we took, I believe, four to the executive committee. And that's always 
you know, an issue, you, you want to show options, but you don't want to show too many to uh, leadership because this is not their thing. Uh, you know, they get flustered if they see too many. And also it gives the wrong impression that, you know, if I could see eight, then I could see 80. Ultimately, it was the most fascinating thing. We really advocated for a, an option that was kind of ultimately, that's the logo that they ended up with. But it was difficult for many of them to get there in two ways. One, the typography, the word mark, we recommended in all our case, US Open, that we drew uh, for them that had the first letter, the U, and the last letter, the N, the same exact shape upside down. It's an italic, all lowercase, bold, sans serif. A few quite vocal voices there could not live with an all lowercase. They said, we're such a major event, we're the fourth Grand Slam, how can we be all lowercase? And how can you make US all lowercase? So there was really a lot of pushback there. And, you know, we, again, we make a visual case. We came back with a slide showing, you know, many famous brands, Amazon, ABC, um, many others that are completely lowercase and, and it's perfectly fine. And we also noted that U.S. Bank and USA Network are all lowercase. So that argument that the USA can't be or U.S. can't be lowercase is, is, is not a serious argument. So that was, that was the first thing. And, and the second thing was about the symbol. And they narrowed it down to two finalists. One was the symbol that we recommended, which is quite abstract. It's a, kind of a, more of a swoosh or kind of a, a, a gesture that evokes the idea of a tennis ball and a flaming ball or maybe a, more of a comet or something. And the other one had a similar idea, but it was much more illustrative, much more clearly a tennis ball, and much more also a little bit closer to the original. And at the last meeting, Gordon Smith, the CEO, said to everybody, he said, look, the one on the left that looks more familiar, I could go with tomorrow. I feel very comfortable with it. The one on the right that is more abstract makes me a little nervous. But he said, you know, listening to these guys, uh, I've realized that if I'm not a little bit nervous about our choice, we didn't make the right choice. With a final nudge by Gordon Smith, the CEO, the USTA decided to follow Sigi's recommendation and they never looked back. As a firm, CGH is known for having a very minimalist approach to mark making. So I was curious, why did Sigi feel so confident in this direction? We recognized immediately that there was something innovative about the rendering of a tennis ball, that every tennis ball you see is rendered as a circle with two arches. And, uh, and here, there, is, there are no arches. It's actually sliced horizontally. So we got excited about that aspect of the rendering. And then when we started using it and putting it in the context of important especially digital context and looking at it from far, it's so bold, it's so strong. We oftentimes make our decision by the amount of ink that a logo has because your eye really enjoys seeing a lot of ink, a bold, strong 
coverage. And, you know, we say ink, even though most of the times we see it now is in digital, but it, it, it is a good kind of explanation to what we're looking for is something strong and bold. And sometimes the logo, you know, another option could be so poetic and so beautiful when you see it in big and large size. And then when it's reduced, because it's not as bold, it loses out. And that's why, you know, we are much less, you know, the allure of the expression or the idea that is conveyed has much less strength with us as the allure of the functionality and what works well. Because over time, the one that works well is going to endure and it's going to last. And as it endures, it gains more and more meaning. So this is playing the long game. It is not about what is going to tell us more about, you know, the entity it represents right off the bat or that people are going to like it right away. It That's really quite meaningless. It's really about what is going to work the best. I don't know about you, but I am sold. Sign me up for that logo. Unfortunately, the rest of the team was not. In the grand scheme of complexity with the USTA, the CEO did not have the final say. There were two more hurdles ahead in the competition for approval, the board and the USTA president. At the end of the presentation, she looked over at Gordon Smith and she said, what did you do to me? And then she turns to me and she goes, I'm going to need a minute. And that minute took two weeks. Eventually, she came around to it and said, yes, making the mental leap from the old to the new just takes some time, especially when you're going from a flaming ball to something that's more abstract. During the time of that indecision from the president of the USTA and former tennis star Katrina Adams, Sagi and his team had another hurdle, the board. At the end of that presentation, one of the board members, it was quiet, and then uh, they asked, does anybody have any comment? And this one board member raised his tie. He had like a pattern of tennis rackets on his tie, and he said, did you try a racket? I have this tie, and everybody <laughs> loves this tie, and I have them in five different colors because everybody loves this tie. Did you try something with a racket? And, you know, it's funny because that oftentimes, you know, people have all these ideas, and we had a good answer to that. You know, when you look at the other three Grand Slams, you know, the U.S. Open is the fourth Grand Slam, the highest prize money in tennis. But before that, there's the Australian Open, then there's the French Open, then there's Wimbledon. And each one of these, especially the French and the and the Wimble and Wimbledon, have an element of the game. So the French Open logo highlights the lines on the court and the clay surface in the color. And Wimbledon has a pair of rackets. So our argument was that you know you've had the ball, keep the ball, which is presented in a new modern way, and let Wimbledon have the rackets. If you are in this industry, you know this moment all too well. Someone at the tail end of the process suggesting an idea. 
Zagi and his team have slaved over this work. They've produced around 6,000 sketches, all to land on just the right symbol for one of the four major tennis tournaments in the world. Oh, a tennis racket? That's a great idea. We never thought of that in all of our rounds and months of work. Yes, they considered a tennis racket. Okay, that's maybe a little too harsh. Luckily, Sagi was much kinder than I am. He was poised and humble, gently ushering the man wearing the racket tie through their rationale. However, that man stole the last word and the logo wasn't officially approved in the meeting, which left Sagi concerned. First of all, I am always worried. Um, this is like my role. Tom is rarely worried. Um, and when Tom is worried, then I'm really worried. But I'm, I'm, rarely, I'm, I'm rarely like, you know, resting on the laurels or, or anything like that. I'm always thinking, what is the next move? What do we need to do? And especially after the board meeting, I was so worried. And I called Amy Choyney, the CMO. And, you know, she said to me, I said, Amy, do you think, because that was the reaction. Did you try a racket? And that's, then they adjourned the meeting. So I was like, wait a minute, that's for sure dead in the water. And then I called Amy and I said, Amy, what did you think about what happened in the meeting? And she said, eh, you can never make everybody happy. And that attitude, you know, this is, you know, a real visionary, right? Is to say, I'm not going to let this stop me because everybody has an opinion and you have a strong conviction about what's right for the organization and what's going to move us forward. And that's what ended up happening. You know, at the end of the day, people sometimes just need to get it off their chest and then you move on. With the CMO's endorsement, they did just that and moved on. They perfected the symbol, tweaked some of the kerning, worked on configurations for various lockups for vertical, stacked, horizontal, etc., and then developed extensive guidelines considering food and beverage, on-screen, signage, apparel, tickets, the trophy, and everything else you could think of. They continued to socialize the work through the USTA organization and presented it at their annual meeting. Overall, it was really well received. Eventually, the new identity rolled out publicly in the spring of 2018. Ticket sales for the 50th anniversary tournament later that year were in full swing, and the logo change started to get picked up and noticed. After all the vetting and the pressure tests and all that, and especially on the back wall, I remember going down to the Arthur Ashe Stadium when they tested the vinyl on the back wall, uh, the silhouette, and, and that was you know, a really amazing moment to see it uh, for real and then to see it uh, in broadcast because what happens, especially on a tennis, in a tennis court, a tennis broadcast, everything becomes brighter, sharper, more vibrant. Um, when you actually attend the, the tennis game, it, it's actually not as kind of vibrant as you see it on TV. And when we saw how that simple silhouette translated into the broadcast image, we knew that it's, it's all going to be okay. The new logo was well received from tennis pros to fans. 
There's no denying this new symbol was and still is a smash hit. Sagi and team found a way to create a new abstract mark that carried most of the equity in terms of the flaming ball transitioning into a fast moving ball. But they did it in a way that modernized the identity. The new mark was on full display during the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Open on August 21st, 2018. The logo change was grossly overshadowed, however, by Naomi Osaka's controversial win over Serena Williams. You've probably noticed, but this change story has a lot of focus on the logo. And this is a telltale sign for CGH. A lot of branding agencies cast vision for a full brand identity system, which typically includes type, color, illustration, iconography, patterns, grids, fancy tote mock-ups, you name it. And it becomes more about the visual language than just the logo. But Sagi and the CGH team don't really go there. So I asked him why. We are concerned with permanence. We, people come to us because they see brands that have been established by this company and have been around unchanged for decades. The value that we bring, and they come to us with specific challenges that oftentimes have to do with the trademark. We, in fact, present visual language very, very often, and not just one, but more than one. Some are very illustrative, some are more typographic, some are more photographic, some are mechanical, some are hand-drawn, some are geometric, some are loose. And if you saw a presentation that we present, oftentimes there's more than one visual language that is presented because the point that we're making is that the logo that we present could live with any visual language. Visual languages often change periodically to keep the brand fresh. We believe that a logo should never have to change. So we try to reassure the client that any visual language that they will have, the logo will work great. You know, people sometimes talk about a slap-on logo. We consider slap-on logo as the best compliment that a logo could have because it means that whatever you put it in the context of, it's going to work. And it doesn't rely of, on a set of you know colors or typography or anything. It, it doesn't take away from the importance of those elements, but oftentimes, you know, what our clients need to see, and and sometimes our clients are very concerned with visual language, and then we will develop it, but Oftentimes, what our clients need to see are mock-ups that are the most relevant to them. They will prove to them that the logo will work in perpetuity, that no matter what they're going to do with it, it will hold their brand within it and will be seen from a distance, in tiny size, in three dimension, in, uh, in pixel formats. That is what they need to see. And no matter in what visual environment. The transformation to something much more modern, much more, in some way, aspirational. You know, when, when, when you go from an illustration that's a very specific thing to something more symbolic, it bring, it invites more interpretation. It, it's more about the feeling and, and, and it does become kind of a banner under which you can innovate. You can kind of do groundbreaking work. And they, you know, obviously they constantly reinvent the, the grounds there and the facilities. And, you know, since then they, uh, 
brought in a, another roof for, for another one of the stadiums. Uh, so it, 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 they're constantly innovating. And I, I, I will not say it's because of the logo, but I will say that the logo does capture that attitude and is ever more appropriate for, for that event. Okay, that is a wrap. Thanks for listening and special thanks to Sagi Haviv for telling us this story. To see more visuals from today's episode, head on over to achangeofbrand.com. And if you liked today's show, please share it with a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Today's episode was edited by Gabe Kitzman, fact-checked by Jill Jeffries, written in part by Pamela Hinman, and produced by Patrice Fielder. Special thanks to Tracy Clark for the brief-in and Rachel Jackson for today's artwork. I'm your host, Blake Howard, signing off.